Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please rise for the call to worship. Psalm 106, verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord, O good thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord or show forth all his praise? Well, let us praise the Lord now by remaining standing and singing together hymn number 76. Once more this evening, we express our gratefulness and our love for you and our gladness in your salvation. Uh, We thank you, O God, that we are able to worship you. Uh, We are able to do so uh, freely. We are able to do so uh, from the heart. Uh, We we ask you, O God, that, uh, well, and according to our own conscience, that would be an important thing to add. Uh, Father, uh, we, we, we we want to go on in our worship. We want to 
to have uh, full Sabbaths for many days to come. And uh, we, we think it is amazing uh, that you have enabled us and equipped us to do such a task as this. So mundane in the eyes of the world and in our more sinful moments, we confess we'd rather be at home watching our TVs or, or off uh, busy uh, in the midst of the busyness of the world. But uh, what a rich heritage you've given us as Christian people that we are able to come together under the power and the influence of your word and in the presence of believers and in the presence of God to enjoy a foretaste of heaven and to enjoy uh, the authority and the power of our God in the midst of his people. And so, Father, as we uh, go on in our worship and as we go on in our lives, we pray that we would not slight our Sabbaths and that we would not slight the worship of God, uh, but that we would feel, if anything, as this year has only, uh, it would seem deepened our conviction that worship is precious to us. Uh, and we wish, uh, again, O oh Lord, to keep it and to hold on to it and to cherish it all the more. We ask you, dear Lord, that you would give us worship which is indeed fruitful and edifying, which is sweet to the believer and to the inner man, and which is uh, refreshing and renewing. For we want to be renewed. And, and, and though it's something of a cliche, we want to be uplifted. Uplifted not in an emotional sense, though, but in a true spiritual sense. Lifted out of the mire, the mire of this world and the, 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 the filth. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the weariness of it all, Lord. We, we want to have uh, the rest of heaven come down upon us here on earth as we look forward to the heavenly Jerusalem, which will be a city that ever rests and never labors. Uh, that is uh, to say, never labors after salvation and never labors to build a kingdom even because it will all be there before us. It will all be finished, just just there for us to enjoy. Amazing to think. There'll be no more children to be had, no more spouses to be sought, no more uh, buildings to build, uh, no more, dare I say it, Lord, no more politicians. It will all be it will all be uh, behind us then. And we will enjoy uh, the everlasting perfection of your heavenly city and your heavenly structures and your heavenly rule. And so, Father, we are we are grateful to look forward to that day. So grateful uh, and, and we are even now through worship caught up into that reality and beginning to experience it even now, both in the inner man, but also outwardly in worship. And, and, and as, as you, O Holy Spirit, are working the great realities of heaven inwardly in us, uh, creating in us this immeasurable weight of the hope of glory in, in the inner man, we pray that our expectation would almost uh, be an overwhelming and a crushing one. So great is our desire to get to heaven. And so great is our desire, Lord Jesus, that you would return. If we have gathered for any other purpose, Lord, well, then we pray you would set us straight and that you would get our priorities right. And that we would have a clear sense that you are the Lord and that there is no other, as you told Moses and as you told the Israelites. And that the whole world lies in your hand and in your power. And that everything that comes to pass is done for your glory and, and by your will as an execution of that will. And everything will lead on to the church's ultimate triumph on the last day together with Christ our Lord. And so, Father, we pray that you would strengthen and comfort and assure your church with thoughts of these things. Not as mere sentimental notions that we entertain about what we wish were true, but as solid realities uh, that come to us by way of your covenant. And which you assure to your church uh, day by day, but especially Lord's Day by Lord's Day through the worship and the preaching and the sacraments. Again, O oh Lord, we ask you that you would give us a certainty and a boldness as we go forward and as we look forward to the great 
realities of the life to come. And so in all these things, O Lord, we acknowledge you alone are God. There is no other. What is man compared to you? We celebrate and we rejoice in your great triumph in history, which we have already begun to see in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and which we look forward to coming in fullness on the last day. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 6, verse 14. As our scripture reading, we'll read this genealogy as part of the scripture reading and then conclude uh, the passage when we come to the the second portion of scripture. Uh, You don't always do so well with these, uh, but let's see. Let's see how we do here. This is the genealogy in essence of Moses and Aaron. These are the heads of their father's households, the sons of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, Hanak and Palu, Hezron and Carmi, the sons of the, or these are the families of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel and Jamin and Ohad and Jashin and Zohar and Shual, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon and Kohath and Merari. And the length of Levi's life was 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni and Shemi, according to their families, the sons of Kohath, Amram and Izhar and Hebron and Uziel. And the length of Kohath's life was 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali and Mushi, these are the families of the Levites, according to their generations. Amram married his father's sister, Joshebed, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the length of Amram's life was 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, and Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, and Elsaphan, and uh, Sithri. Aaron married Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab, the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nahab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Aser, and Elkanah, and Abi, Asaph. These are the families of the Korahites. Aaron's son Eleazar married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the fathers' households of the Levites, according to their families. It was the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, according to their hosts. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the sons of Israel from Egypt. It was the same Moses and Aaron. We'll pick up at verse 28 uh, in just a moment, but let us stand together and sing now the doxology. As 
we go on and are nearly finished with the canons of Dort, fifth main point of doctrine, the perseverance of the saints. Article 14, God's use of means and perseverance. If you'll look on with me in your bulletin and read along. And just as it has pleased God to begin this work of grace in us by the proclamation of the gospel, so God preserves continues and completes this work by the hearing and reading of the gospel, by meditation on it, by its exhortations, threats, and promises, and also by the use of sacraments. So the question here is, how is it that God preserves the believer? Uh, which is, I think, uh, how R.C. Sproul uh, dealt with the P in Tulip, not perseverance, but preservation. The Lord is preserving the believer. I think that's a helpful way of looking at it. Not so much we as persevering, but God is preserving us in our faith so that we do persevere. He does so through these many ways, uh, through the preaching and the reading and the meditation of uh, the Bible and everything that we find there. I want to especially note not just the exhortations, but even the threats. You see, it says, by the threats, he preserves his church. It's one of uh, the many ways that God causes his church to persevere in faith. Uh, You think the Christian, uh, the Lord may be seeking to unsettle the Christian in his faith. But what he's really doing is making the Christian all the more mindful of the need to persevere. And so all of these things, exhortations, threats and promises, together with the sacraments, are means by which God causes the believer to go on in his faith. I think we have one more after this. Uh, Let us stand up uh, and sing together hymn 27 in preparation for the sermon.
Please be seated. Let us conclude now the reading of that passage, beginning in chapter 6, verse 28 of the book of Exodus. Now it came to pass, or it came about on on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I speak to you. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am unskilled in speech. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. And you shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh, that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my host, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. So Moses and Aaron did. As the Lord commanded them, thus they did. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Let us pray together. Great God in heaven, uh, we are so thankful for the message of Exodus. Uh, God, uh, we pray that once again you might shed light upon your word and offer encouragement to your church through the preaching of this great book. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, we have the conclusion to the call to Moses, or the call of Moses, something which uh, we saw began uh, in Midian, at the foot of the mountain, chapter 3, uh, but really which has been unfolding ever since then, the Lord calling the Moses into service, the Lord telling Moses, this is what I will have you to do. So in a sense, you could say the call of Moses has been a dragged out affair, It occurs through a series of events. But by the time we reach chapter 7, verse 7, the final verse we considered, we have indeed and in fact reached the conclusion of that drawn out ordeal. Uh, with, With the conclusion, Moses and Aaron did it as the Lord commanded them. Thus they did it. May I just notice in passing how it is sometimes like this. Uh, how the call of the minister or the prophet is sometimes uh, prolonged. Sometimes it unfolds through uh, many obstacles and difficulties and objections. And you see Moses is still here objecting. Lord, I can't speak. As I suggested in a prior sermon, this is one of the great evidences, in fact, that a man is truly called, that uh, he is reluctant and that, that he has a sense of the gravity of the work and his own inadequacy to do it. He recognizing that the life of the minister will be one of hardship. Uh, and, and Moses was right. We might uh, notice once again, his life was not a good one. It was a very difficult one. 
And this is something that we discover through the example of Moses that is not always resolved immediately. It isn't as though the man uh, who is being called raises his objections, the Lord resolves it, and off he goes into ministry. These are often things he carries with him into ministry as he continues to struggle with this aspect. Uh, As I say, sometimes uh, not only into the ministry, but even beyond for the duration of his ministry. Especially, as with Moses here, he finds and he meets discouragements along the way. And so he asks with Moses, for instance, Lord, why did you ever send me? What are the sorts of things that discourage the minister? Well, one is a wayward church, as as Moses found time and again. He was dealing with a rebellious and uh, eventually it was clear an apostate people. Another thing that discourages a minister is an apostate, godless nation. Moses had to deal with both. Uh, And so we understand his reluctance. Very often, uh, these are the kinds of things that the man will face in the ministry. And how great uh, a burden these things are to the true minister of God. And yet, what we recognize through Moses is that the call of God and the burden that he places in the heart of the minister is not uh, or does not rest upon the state of the world or even the state of the church. In fact, very often he calls the man into ministry as an instance of his grace and as a voice against these things. If you think, for instance, of John the Baptist speaking out against the wicked Herod, the Lord raised him up as a voice in the wilderness, not only to prepare the way of the of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, but to denounce the wickedness of Herod. And uh, and he paid for it, didn't he? Uh, but so is the life of the minister uh, very often. I was just reading my ordination vows again today, uh, and and I was reminded that I think it's the seventh of the last vow asks the man if he is willing uh, to to even suffer persecution uh, if necessary. Let me see if I can find that. In fact, it's right beside me. I can't. Anyways, it's in there, I assure you. I have all these tabs and I can't find it. Uh, there it is, right there. Let me, let me just read it to you. There it is. Vow 6. Do you promise to be zealous and faithful in maintaining the truths of the gospel and the purity, the peace, the unity of the church, whatever persecution or opposition may arise on you on that account? There it is. Moses faced it. John faced it. Who is to say uh, what we might face? The point is simply uh, that uh, we understand the reluctance of Moses and we see that the Lord is still seeking to resolve it. He wasn't entirely sure he was ready to face all of the hardships of ministry of denouncing Pharaoh, of passing through the Exodus, and then, uh, uh, let us be frank, pastoring a wayward church in the wilderness, which is what he had to do. Uh, But before we come to the resolution of that in uh, chapter 7, we have something peculiar, what I read in the first scripture reading, and that is the genealogy, which occurs in the middle of this incident or this day. Uh, what, what, what we have in chapter 6 is broken off. There's a genealogy and then the day is resumed. Uh, uh, or the account of that day is resumed in chapter 6, verse 28. And so about this genealogy, several comments uh, should be made. The first is, again, the way it interrupts the narrative. By the time we come to verse 28, we must think that this is a new incident. It isn't. It's a conclusion of the incident that preceded the genealogy. It even says so. It came about 
on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt. It's reminding us it's the same day. And when we see what the Lord said to him, I am the Lord, it of course reminds us of the very thing that we saw. Remember, uh, I think he said it four times in verses 1 through 8. He's summarizing what had been said and then concluding. But that leads us to ask the question, the more obvious question, which is, why break in with the genealogy here? Why interrupt the account of this day when the Lord at last answers Moses' final objection and sends him boldly into the ministry? Well, I suppose this all has to do with Hebrew narrative. To them, it was important to know as much about these men as they could. They wanted to know who Moses and Aaron were exactly. And what was their precise relation uh, both to themselves and to Father Abraham? You find the same thing in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel. The way uh, the record of our Lord's life begins with the genealogy. Who was this man? Well, he was the son of Joseph and Joseph was the son of so-and-so and on and on we go. It's the same thing with Moses and Aaron. We read in verse 13 that the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and he gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel Out of the land of Egypt. Yes, but who were these two men? That's the question that it's answering. And so here is the answer. We see first Reuben and Simeon, verse 14 and verse 15. Not because they mattered here, but only to make it clear where Levi fell in the scheme of the twelve brothers. He came after Reuben and Simeon. And you'll notice that in the genealogies. Uh, And so following a brief account of Reuben and Simeon, you have the account of Levi. And Levi is the important person here. Moses and Aaron came out of the tribe of Levi. Uh, Verse 16, the names of the sons of Levi. And these are the things we notice about Levi, which are highlighted in this genealogy. First, that Levi had three sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And of the three, it is, it is evident or obvious who uh, the true interest is. It is Kohath. Because Kohath, as we read in verse 18, had Amram. And it was Amram who was the father of both Moses and Aaron. Verse 20. The very men, again, verse 13, God spoke to and charged to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. There's other interesting details here, which I would just notice in passing. You have the focus... Uh, following Moses and Aaron in verse 20 uh, upon uh, other prominent priests. Interestingly, we notice, and we should know this, that none of the priests came from Moses. They all came from Aaron. From Aaron, uh, you have the four sons, all of whom were priests. You have Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. You remember what happens to Nadab and Abihu. They were disobedient priests. And from one of those sons, you have Phineas. Also, another son of Kohath was Ishar, from whom Korah came and his sons, the sons of Korah. And so this is, in essence, an account of the priestly class. But the real significance, once more, is seen uh, in verses 26 and 27. Let me just read them once again. It was the same Moses and Aaron to whom the Lord said, bring out the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their host. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, bringing out the sons of Israel from Egypt. It was the same Moses and Aaron. This is who uh, these men were. That's the point. But as we return to what, what is said in verse 28, resuming the narrative of the day the Lord spoke to them, 
We not only resume it, but we conclude the call of Moses. And as I said, we find in verse 30 that the Lord is still dealing with his objections. Moses said, behold, I'm unskilled in speech. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? Uh, And you remember from chapter 6, he was objecting. He said, uh, he said, in essence, the same thing. The people didn't listen to me. How then will Pharaoh? And so the Lord is dealing with that and he's resolving it. That's what we discover. He does so in three ways. Well, he does so in two ways, excuse me. Uh, And then there's a third point I wish to make, uh, which is not so much a resolution of the difficulty, but which is uh, an interesting point, I think, to notice going forward. So uh, correcting that two ways, the name of the Lord, that's the first thing. You see, again, uh, that is the assertion of verse 29. The Lord spoke to Moses on that day saying, I am the Lord. That was, of course, uh, the focus and uh, the key note of what we read in verses 1 through 8, where, again, the Lord was answering his his objection. He says, ever since, why did you send me, verse 22 of chapter 5, ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done Harm to this people and you've not delivered your people at all. And the Lord answers him. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Verses six uh, verses one through eight of chapter six. And so as uh, that speech is summarized and resumed here, it's fitting that we, we read that the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. In verse twenty nine, I want to make certain observations about. Uh, that name here again, because it's so important to the message of Exodus. You remember that the Lord says, I am the Lord, verse 2, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, that his El should die, but by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. And so it is the name Jehovah, or Lord, that is especially associated with the Exodus event. Let us uh, be concerned to recognize that and to understand the significance of the name, especially in its connection with the Exodus. We saw last time that the name represented the unfettered freedom of the Lord to act. He is bound by none. He acts with an absolute freedom. To declare that he is the Lord is to declare that all his actions are self-determined. They spring from himself. That he does not depend upon outside influences to decide what he will do. He's not waiting, I think I said this last time, for man to act and then he reacts. That is not how we should conceive of the Lord, which is especially important to see here, because even though the compassion of the Lord here is stressed in the prior passage, he he saw, he noticed their groanings and he had compassion on them. We should not think that the Lord is reacting to their miseries here. That would be to misunderstand who he is and especially what the name of Jehovah signifies. It was not their miseries that moved him to act. It was not their miseries that created in him an inclination that did not exist before. Or or desire suddenly to be merciful. No. For him to have mercy and compassion toward Israel is for him to express what was already in him and what was always in him. An attribute that is eternal, namely his mercy and his compassion. And he finds reasons to be merciful, not in man, but in himself. All of his actions and all of his decisions all find their reasons in himself. 
which is expressed perfectly when he declares in chapter 33, again as a revelation of the name Jehovah, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. In other words, it all depends upon him. It is an execution of what he has decided and what he has determined in advance. It is an expression of a disposition that was always there. A desire on his part to be merciful to Israel. So that is the first thing. It depends, the mercy of God depends upon him and not upon man. And the greater our grasp of this truth, the more certain our salvation will appear. Seeing it depends not on ourselves, but upon his own desire to show mercy and love. Wherever and to whomever that desire exists, there is nothing that can stop or change it. He will be merciful to whom he will be merciful. That is the message. And that is, once again, what the name of Jehovah implies. And if his inclination to show mercy is something that cannot change, that always means, or that also means, excuse me, that we can never lose his mercy once we've found it. But this also clarifies uh, what the Lord is saying to the church here. And what he's saying to his servants, Moses and Aaron, why theology is, this is a point I've made before, but let me make it again. Why theology, understood as the science or the study of God himself, theology is and always will be the proper task of the church, not of the seminary. Listen carefully. Theology is the proper task of the church. When a preacher uh, tends to get a little theological in his preaching, the astute hearer, hearer will often complain, this is not a seminary classroom pastor. Well, first of all, I would remind such a hearer that he or she has most likely never been in a seminary classroom. But I would also remind him or her that the church in her gatherings are meant to do what Israel was doing here. And that is to consider the essential glory of God. She was to be filled, uh, filled with thoughts of God in his greatness. She was to consider and to ponder and to explore the great theological truths concerning, again, the glory of God and his essential glory and the way that glory is expressed in his saving acts, which is exactly what the Lord himself does. The way he emboldens and strengthens and comforts his church is with thoughts of himself, with grand thoughts of himself. Uh, going back to the to the sermon this morning. He does not give us small, diminished views of the truth, but large and exceedingly great ones. I am the Lord Jehovah. Let us seek as a church to understand all that that means and seeing that our salvation rests upon the certainty of his name. Again, God encourages and comforts the church with thoughts of himself. And the more we engage in that sort of theology, who is the Lord, the greater our comfort will be. Something else the Lord says to Moses is this. He says, how will Pharaoh listen to me? That's his objection. Verse 30, he says, see, I make you as God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all I command you and your brother Aaron shall speak to God and let the sons he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. Uh, we see here not only uh, the, 
the glory of the Lord's name, but the authority which the Lord gives to Moses. That's the second way the Lord sets aside his objection. Moses is here invested with heavenly authority and power over Egypt and its ruler and its gods. As all of the ensuing events will will reveal, the the Exodus event begins in earnest in chapter 7, verse 8, as we'll see next time. Now that he is invested with that authority, he goes forth with that authority. This was the relief that Moses needed. It was the thing which finally set his mind at ease and made this reluctant prophet the obedient prophet. Again, verse 6, he went and did as the Lord said. The thing, as I say, which silenced his objections. I think we need to see, and what the Lord is saying about Moses, that he was a type of Christ and the authority uh, he was invested with. The similarities between Moses and Christ are obvious when you think of their lives and their ministries. Moses was ministering and mediating the old covenant here, as he'll do throughout the remainder of the Pentateuch. And Christ was the minister and the mediator of the new covenant, a comparison that we find in the book of Hebrews. And so we need to recognize Moses as the true prophet who carries with him the authority of God himself in what he says. That was his office. Now, obviously, Moses uh, possessed this to a lesser degree than Christ, since Christ possessed the authority, uh, this authority as God. But what's so interesting to notice about Moses is that he was to be as God to Pharaoh. Not in an actual sense, but in a figurative sense. He being so invested with divine authority that Moses would stand over Pharaoh as his God and his superior. But the point here is that Moses possessed a heavenly authority. And let me just say, this is the kind of authority that we need today. It's what we find in the prophets like Moses. It's what we find preeminently in the ministry and the life of Jesus Christ. We find authority which stands above the authority which we find anywhere in the world. And the reason this is worth noting today is because all of this can be found in the Bible. The Bible is a book which is invested with authority and rightly used. It will always win the day. We do not need to fear this or that ruler or the debater or the wise man of the age. We simply need as a church to rest under its profound authority. Or considered as a task of the church, it is the Bible we need to preach in the Bible alone. Because only in the word of God do we find this amazing authority. And it is the Bible that we need to conform to as Christians. And then we will know and display its amazing authority to the unbelieving world as Moses did through the exodus to Pharaoh and Egypt. And we will possess something of this tremendous confidence Moses had to face his great opponent, Pharaoh. Why? Because he had, or he was invested with authority from heaven. And I suggest to you that the church is in a similar possession or position in her possession of the Bible. And so my point is this. What we, like Moses, need most is this sense of authority. In the face of an unbelieving and even at times a hostile world and hostile rulers. We need to understand who the true authority is and who possesses the true authority. And not be afraid or tremble in the face of an unbelieving world or a hostile ruler. Do we really believe, beloved, that God rules the earth? That he is the God of heaven and earth. 
and that as a church we are commissioned by God and invested with his authority as we possess his Bible. And so we, like Moses, in a sense, you could say, possess the same authority as disciples of Jesus Christ because we're possessors of his Bible. It is the Bible that contains this authority. And it is the Bible and the preaching of the Bible and Christians who believe the Bible and who live according to the Bible that have the same kind of authoritative living, you might say, and who are more than conquerors in the face of an unbelieving world. Why not then use it and go and do as our Lord commands us, free of worldly care and full of, boze, uh, full of boldness? Verse 6. So Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded them. Thus they did it. But the next point is fascinating and it's less to do with the objection of Moses. And it has to do with the Exodus event itself. As the Lord uh, foretells in verses 3 through 5, I'll just summarize the Lord is saying, Uh, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's not going to listen to what you say, but I will deliver the sons of Israel out of Egypt anyway. And the Egyptians themselves will glorify my name in the face of such a glorious deliverance. And so uh, we discover here uh, that the Exodus, not surprisingly, becomes the central event of this book as it's about to unfold. What I want to uh, describe in advance is the significance of the Exodus event. Uh, And these are points that we will consider Uh, As these events unfold, the Lord is swearing what he will do. I will Pharaoh Hardin's heart. I will lay my hand on Egypt and I will bring my people out of the land. Not only does the Lord declare that the exodus will what uh, the exodus will be his own doing, but that uh, he has control even of the dispositions of men's hearts, even the heart of Pharaoh. All of it will be the doing of the Lord. The question becomes, what is he doing in the Exodus? And there's five things I want to say here. One thing, very obviously, that he is doing is he is getting glory for himself. He is seeking to display his own glory to an unbelieving world. He says this very clearly in verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. I think this is a very instructive and necessary point for the church to see that what God is seeking in the course of history, which, yes, deals with the rise and fall of nations and rulers and so forth, what he is seeking. Oh, uh, and also the church in relation to it, we ought to see. I think Exodus illustrates that as well. What God is seeking in the unfolding of history is always to get the most glory for himself. And all of his actions and his providences are aimed at that great end. Even his enemies, he tells us in verse 5, will not be able to deny that he is the Lord. All his actions prove this in history. Even those which it would seem are most obviously not suited toward this aim. Those which were, it would seem to us, least conducive in showing forth his glory. I am, of course, referring to Pharaoh himself. It's amazing to think that the Lord would raise up an obstinate ruler in order to glorify himself. But that's exactly what he does. And he makes matters worse by increasing his obstinacy. He hardens his heart. That's the Lord's doing. That would not seem to us to be the best way for the Lord to show forth his glory. But that's because we're not God. We always prefer ease and comfort, do we not? Listen to me. Our God prefers a fight. He is a God of battle. 
He is a great warrior and champion. You cannot read the Old Testament and come to any other conclusion. He loves to triumph over his enemies in the greatest possible way. And this is a way of clarifying our own place in history. We are just here for his glory and for no other reason. He never promises comfort and ease or plenty to the church. Very often he brings the church through great hardship under the worst possible rulers who hate and reject God only so that he might display his glory in a mighty way. So don't think that God's purpose in history is to make things easy. Very often he makes things hard in order to show forth his power and his sovereignty. Which brings me to the next point. And here I'm beginning to borrow extensively from Voss and his treatment of the Exodus in his book, uh, Biblical Theology, as he summarizes the Exodus. That the Exodus is a display of the sovereign divine power of the Lord throughout the Exodus event. That is what we will uh, what we will see in an, uh, to an increasing degree that whatever power the powerful of this age may possess, they can never replicate or overcome his power. And here is another great truth that the church must take great comfort in that God is powerful to save. He's powerful to deliver. He's powerful to defeat our enemies uh, when he has deemed it so. And so let us not be afraid of what man can do to us. It's another lesson of the Exodus. Connected with this is the element of grace in the third place. The Exodus event seen as the bestowal of grace upon the visible church. God was doing, it is clear, what man did not deserve. And we will see this as an act of grace once we realize that grace is the bestowal of favor when man deserves the opposite. Which is why Israel's unbelief is highlighted just prior to this. It is because it clarifies that Israel herself was undeserving of this special favor. In fact, she was as undeserving as uh, Egypt itself was. And it is amazing to think that God judges Israel, but he delivers, or, or Egypt, excuse me, but he delivers Israel. I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. There it is. The sovereign grace of the Lord on display. A bestowal of favor upon one and not another, though both equally wicked. And so she, as the visible church, enjoyed God's kindness here, kindness here only because he wished to bestow, bestow such kindness upon the church. The, the desire arose solely from within himself as the Lord. There is no sense in which we can say that Israel was deserving of the favor which she came to possess, her deliverance, or that God owed this to them. The reality is the opposite, and so we see it as an in, instance of grace. But next, there's, there's a very interesting dichotomy for us to observe. It's common to speak of the Exodus, Exodus event purely in terms of its spiritual or subjective significance as the unfolding and the outworking of a spiritual religious conflict, which is something I've said and it's something that I'll say again in the next point. It certainly was that. But to speak of it in such a way is to ignore the reality that it was, in fact, an objective event. It was not simply a matter of conflict between two nations, but it did involve that. In other words, we have to appreciate the objective element of the Exodus, that it did not involve that it did involve rather an actual conflict on the plane of history between the people of Israel and the nation of Egypt. 
the church in relation to the state. It is something that we often find being worked out in history as an objective, uh, as an objective reality. So the conflict did not occur purely on a spiritual plane. That is to, uh, that is to divest the uh, exodus of its full significance. And the reason this is important to stress is not only because that's how the exodus is often portrayed, but also because as a general principle, the spiritual side of things always has an objective side to it, always. For instance, we are worshiping here in a building. And that is something which is meaningful to us. In fact, I would say it's quite a beautiful building, and I thank God for this building. Don't be so spiritual that we diminish the outward objective reality. We really are present here as human beings, breathing air. Again, we're not so spiritual as to pretend that isn't true. Nor are we so spiritual as to pretend it didn't matter to us when the church was closed for seven weeks. No, it did matter a great deal. And so our spiritual status often depends to a very great extent upon our outward objective status. That is an important lesson of the Exodus. Israel could not, as a nation, as a visible church, could not properly worship God until they were freed from foreign bondage, until they were delivered out of the oppressive, uh, the oppressive tyranny of Pharaoh. In other, in other words, her spiritual status was greatly hindered by her outward circumstance. This is how Voss puts it. He says, first of all, that is before he comes to the spiritual side of things. First of all, redemption is here portrayed as before everything else, a deliverance from an objective realm of sin and evil. No people of God can spring into existence without being cut loose from a world opposed to God and to themselves in their very origin. We need God to be favorable to us in our circumstances. That is why, as a historical fact, our pilgrim fathers fled to this country, pursuing the great ideal of the free exercise of worship, religious liberty. That is also why, if you understand the history of the Reformation, the reformers depended in great measure on, in Germany on the electors in Germany. And why the Reformation really only succeeded with their help. It wasn't just the work of Luther and the preachers, but it was equally the work of the electors and the politicians and the rulers. And it thrived only in those regions where the electors were favorable. There's a reason Calvin fled France. The Christians were being persecuted there. But he found a favorable circumstance in Geneva. The outward does matter. That's the point. This is an important lesson of the Exodus. We as a church cannot pretend our outward state is meaningless. It really matters a great deal. Speaking of a favorite doctrine of mine, the spirituality of the church, sometimes it is falsely portrayed as though it only implies the inner or the spiritual. But a true portrayal of that doctrine is in reality that it involves both aspects, the outward as well as the spiritual. However, what that doctrine seeks to cultivate in the church and in the Christian is a sense of the priority upon the spiritual and that the spiritual always takes precedence and that the great interest of the church is always in the spiritual state of man. That is the sense in which we speak of the spirituality of the church. But even its most staunch adherents never would pretend in reality that the outward state of affairs do not matter. 
Uh, for if for no other reason, uh, our circumstances will often force us to realize that they do. Do you remember, uh, as a scriptural example, what James says? Don't tell me you have faith and you find your brother in need and say, but be warm and filled. You have a similar statement in 1 John chapter 3. The one who really loves his brother will look after him. The outward, the objective really does matter. It isn't easy to, all, to worship then in times of hardship. It isn't easy to worship with hostile rulers. It isn't easy to worship when it would seem God's providence is against us. And so the state of the church and our worship depends upon the objective element. And at times it becomes the duty of the church, not as Moses tried to do at first, or as we sometimes try to do to change those outward affairs, but to cry out to God. That was one of the great lessons Moses had to learn, as I say. Moses had to learn that the power of deliverance did not rest in his hands. It took him 40 years in the wilderness to learn that lesson. But that he, as we, must learn to depend upon the Lord. In other words, the lesson is this, that we do not control the course of history any more than we control the state of our souls. What we need most in both aspects or both spheres is for the Lord to act. We need him at times to deliver the church objectively out of times of trial and bondage. But coming to the spiritual or the subjective side, the inward, the spiritual, which, as I said, is indeed uh, the greatest significance here. Recognize that there was a spiritual side to the exodus. And then recognize that while Israel experienced the objective deliverance of the Lord in the outward plane, she failed to participate in the inward blessings that it conveyed. Outwardly, she was delivered. Inwardly, she was devoid of life. So here is the real tragedy of Israel. God was delivering Israel as a nation and as a visible church out of her miseries, which included not only her bondage, but also the evils and the sins of that nation, the nation of Israel or of Egypt. He was bringing her out of her miseries so that she might worship him and enjoy communion with himself. The outward deliverance had a spiritual end, in other words. And with that deliverance came a real infusion of divine grace and power into her spiritual and religious life. The exodus, again, was a spiritual and a religious event. They were enabled to taste of the heavenly gift and to partake of the powers of the age to come, which was for them a genuine religious experience. They really did taste and see that the Lord was good. But here, ultimately, is where her failure was seen, where she was seen as an apostate, unbelieving nation. For in experiencing these things on the subjective spiritual plane, rather than rejoicing in the Lord, she fell away. She apostatized. She became she she gave up the worship of God for the worship of idols. They who heard the voice of the Lord hardened their hearts in unbelief and went on living a life of sin and disobedience. That is what we will see once we uh, find Israel coming out on the other side of the Exodus and residing at the foot of the mountain. Not a people who were inwardly revived and renewed and full of spiritual life. But people who were spiritually dead and that for all of her success on the objective plane, she was devoid of true inward spiritual life. 
Although uh, we, we do have to say fairly that there were some like Moses himself who had indeed experienced not only the, the outward event of the Exodus, but who had a true exp- uh, appreciation for it uh, in its spiritual significance. Because Moses had not only tasted these things, but he adhered to them and he cherished them inwardly as one whose inner experience of grace matched the outward experience of the Exodus. And though he too died in the wilderness outwardly and objectively, we cannot question uh, for him. We cannot question that for him. The Exodus was a powerful experience of inward grace, which brought him into deeper and richer communion with God, as the narrative plainly indicates. Again, recognizing why the objective isn't everything. Moses dies in the wilderness with the people who were apostate, but inwardly he was full of life and he communed with God and he now reigns in heaven. He was a man of faith. And so the point is that as God blesses us outwardly, we as Christians discover that he is working something even greater inwardly. We depend upon both, but understand where the priority lies. And understand the tragedy of those for whom uh, they experience the outward only, but are devoid of the inward. And in that sense, we realize that the exodus and all uh, the mighty works of the Lord, and for that matter, all his ordinary works as well in our lives, have the effect of driving his grace and our gratitude deeper into our hearts. Again, an inward experience of grace. In other words, one of the things uh, we learn from this dichotomy, the outward and the inward deliverances, that's one of the things that separates one who is apostate and one who isn't. Both having participated in the outward blessings of church life is what effect those things have on the inner man. Do they produce faith and steadfastness and confidence in God as Moses? Or do we find that as soon as the outward works have passed, there is no inward life in us? As we find in Israel and as we find uh, in Hebrews chapters three and four, we're warned that we don't go the way of Israel, having heard the voice of the Lord, but hardening our, hardening our hearts in unbelief. But having seen all this, we are prepared to go on to see what the Lord will do to Pharaoh in the Exodus and what he will do for the people of God in an outward sense. As Matthew Henry says, pointing to the transition here. The dispute with, <clears throat> with, uh, with God and Moses here finishes, and the dispute with Moses and Pharaoh begins. And that is what we will consider, Lord willing, next time. Uh, but for now, let us return to the Lord our praise by standing and singing together hymn 62.
now the Lord's blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.